some of us, I think, want something more complicated, where it's like, I, I'll do some amazing things. And I think about General Naaman in the Old Testament as that example, where he had leprosy and appealed to the prophet, and the prophet sent the servant and said, just go dip in the river and you'll be good. He's like, I'm not gonna do that. Like, maybe you do something amazing. And I think about dipping in the river is similar to me as, I want you to be more present with your emotions. And as I bring that concept up to people, they're like, nah, like give me a new internet filter and a new accountability buddy and a new program. And it's like, no, seriously. I just want you to notice what you're feeling this week. And what you'll discover is typically what precedes an urge to view pornography is an emotion. This may not be a sexual concern as much as it is an emotional concern. And so if you're running through life, sprinting to the next thing, you just keep tripping and falling and you don't take the time to look down and see what's tripping you. And often it's emotion. It's I'm overwhelmed or I'm lonely or I'm stressed or I'm sad. And when we're not aware of that, we tend to engage in behaviors to try to calm those emotions, but we don't even know what they are. There are lots of discussions that have been had about pornography. We've probably done six, seven, eight episodes about it here in the cultural hall. The effects, what it is, what it isn't, what addiction is, what it isn't. And uh, I'm honored to be able to bring you this conversation. Now, this may be a little bit different. This may be a different perspective than you have ever listened, heard, discussed before. All I'm asking you to do is just to listen. I'm also asking you that if you're like, no, you are dead wrong. This was what a waste of all the things. If you feel all of the feelings as you listen to this episode, I would love to get your feedback. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us. Contact at theculturalhall.com or you can find us at The Cultural Hall on all social medias. We would love to hear from you, but it is my pleasure to share with you this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, an opportunity for us to talk about pornography. Now, hold on. Listen, guys. Uh, we're going to do this in, in a way that uh, maybe you've never heard it addressed before. We are going to take this first block and look at the problem of pornography, what it is exactly, what it isn't exactly. And I think that there will be some interesting things uh, that come from that part of the conversation. Then we're going to talk about the individuals that would find themselves, and I'm air quoting, though you can't see it unless you are a Patreon subscriber of the Cultural Hall, I'm air quoting the addiction. What does it mean to be addicted? Are we all addicts? Are we not? What is that? What does that personal look at uh, pornography look like? And then finally, in the third block, we're talking solution. Uh, what is the uh, best step forward, or steps forward, or are they leaps, or how does that look like? And and uh, we are joined by Cameron Staley. Uh, people will immediately need to know Cameron. What makes you the guy to talk about this? Oh, gosh, I will not step into that place as the guy. I am a voice in this, um, but this is something that I've been researching as a clinical psychologist for over 10 years now and, and something that I work with as a clinician in this area. I've, I've worked at BYU's campus and Utah State's and Idaho State's. So I've been in this region for quite a while. So I've worked with a lot of people that struggle with pornography and sexuality and religion and faith is always a big component of that. I've just spent a lot of time kind of working in this area. Uh, what, make, what makes you so interested about it? You know, sometimes I, I do try to retrace my steps and figure out how did I get to this point? And 
I think it was as a graduate student in the clinical psych program, I had to pick a topic. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I knew I wanted to work with couples and want to learn more about sexuality. And so there was a, a mentor there that had a background in sexuality. And, and I said, yeah, I just got to come up with something. And so I was actually sitting in church, listening to somebody talk about pornography and how addicting it was. And I thought, you know, I, I believe that I've been taught that my whole life, but I have no idea what the research says about it. I have no idea the psychological impact. People talk about it as an addiction all the time. I actually don't know what has been studied. So I pitched that as a potential topic. And my mentor, who had been around the block a lot longer than me, said, you know, are you serious? You really want to study pornography addiction? <laughs> and I was naive. I'm like, it's just science. Like we ask a question, we conduct a study, and we let the data drive conclusions. And she's like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's how it goes. Yep, <laughs> good luck. Yep. So I actually looked into the research and was pretty surprised. There wasn't a lot of good scientific studies on pornography, it being an addiction, the impact. There was a lot of people talking about it as an addiction and a lot of people's kind of anecdotes with it. But as far as like good experimental science, there wasn't a whole lot. Um, so we did construct a research design where we had people come into the lab who had problems with pornography viewing and we monitored their brain activity through EEG as they viewed sexual images and exciting films and nature documentaries. And I was pretty sure that their brain activity would look like those who struggle with substances like alcohol or methamphetamine. And it didn't. Hmm. And that isn't what we found. And so we published that study and um, we got a lot of pushback, which was surprising. Because for me, I just thought this is just science. I just had a question. Is pornography addicting? I just want to look at that. And that's not what we found. So uh, I want to uh, define a couple of terms so that we make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, what do we deem to be pornography or pornographic? And then secondly, uh, what do we call an addiction or addictive? If I could define pornography, I would might be the first person in history to define that. I know legislatures, politicians have tried to have a definition of that for a long time and I think the definition they fell on is, you know it when you see it. Yeah, well, yeah that, that's pornography. Wow, it that's doesn't cool. look like pornography to me. Well, it sure does to me. Yep. So I think how I define it is sexual images. So that's pretty lame. It's not very exciting, but it's um, seeing anybody, and that could be people that are naked or engaging in sexual activity, and then viewing that for entertainment or pleasure. Um, so some people might view that as art or leisure. Others might call that explicit and pornographic. So I think there's a range, but generally I think about pornography as sexual images or writing um, with the intent to kind of elicit sexual arousal. So so uh, just to give uh, maybe a for instance, like a, a magazine, like a Victoria's Secret, would you consider that to be something that would be pornographic because it's meant to sell a... a you know, the underwear or, or the brassiere. I love that I called it a brassiere, by the way. How old am I? A hundred? Uh, you know, the, the, those kind of things. It, its intent is clearly to sell and it's yeah. geared for women, but some people will call that pornography. I just, I'm curious as to kind of where your, your soft boundary would be. Yeah, that's tough again. Like I, I have a hard time seeing things in black and white and that sure. concrete. Sure. Everything's on a continuum and I would say personally, I, I probably wouldn't define it that way, but 
I've worked with clients that they came in and said, I have a pornography concern because I do look at like JCPenney catalogs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, they're not as racy as Victoria's Secrets and they define that as pornography. And honestly, I was okay with that. Like, I'm going to work within somebody's context and belief. And if that's troubling to them and distressing, I'm going to work with that. Um, I may not personally define that as pornographic, um, but there's probably a lot of things I don't choose to watch that other people would say, hey, that's totally fine. So I think, I think that's very individual, but I think for me, generally, things that are more pornographic in nature are more explicitly showing sexual acts and having kind of a, a semi-nude image probably doesn't cross that threshold for me, but for other people, it might. So I think we've already hit on, and you sort of outlined that at the beginning, right? If we could define exactly what it is, man, wouldn't we be the you know pioneers of this whole thing? It's nuanced. It's very nuanced. It's individual. What you view, what the you know the person next door would view, can be completely different, and and all of that stigma, all of that feelings of guilt, all of those other things that may be attached to viewing pornography can come from very different images. Uh, let's lead into then to that second question: Is what do you consider to be uh, an addiction or the um, the uh, behaviors of an addictive um, experience? Yeah. So yeah, you're asking to me to define two of my least favorite words. Yeah. Because I think they are so loaded and have so many associations, and we have so many judgments and assumptions attached to those, and we all think we're talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we're not. So I think with addiction, if I go back to how we clinically diagnose things like an alcohol use disorder, um, we used to talk about as alcohol abuse or dependence. The term addiction actually isn't in the actual diagnosis. Um, so today we use alcohol use disorder. Oh. Um, we don't even use that term addiction. Um, but that addiction term has been around for many decades now. And typically when I think about addiction and what people mean by that is that somebody's an ingesting a substance that over time it's changing how we metabolize that substance where our body becomes dependent on that hmm. and is expecting that substance. And if we don't get it, we experience some withdrawal effects um, from that. So typically I define it in that way that there's a physiological impact but that being said, some people can use heroin and not have that physiological dependence develop. So that's not even a great definition for drug use. So I, I tend not to use the term addiction a whole lot because it's such a general term for things that are very specific. Um, but I think some of the features of addictive behavior, if I use your air quotes too, please, is somebody is engaging in a behavior that they want to stop and they're having a hard time stopping that. Mm -hmm. Well, there's negative consequences at work or in relationships or in their health or in their morals. So when people say I'm addicted and they mean it by I'm doing something, I don't want to do it anymore. I understand that and I get that and I'm pretty comfortable with that. But from a clinical standpoint, that may not be the most accurate way to use that term. So I want to hard stop here and just highlight a couple of things that we've already talked about. You know, uh, we talk about the definition of pornography and that we can't, and we talk about addiction and say, well, we probably shouldn't uh, describe it that way. So I hope that that gives you an idea of where this conversation is going to go, that it is very much a different 
conversation, which isn't to say, I mean, you kind of queued up that these are behaviors that people would want to stop and that they're having difficulty stopping. So we're not saying, hey, it's a free pass and here we go. That's what this discussion is going to be. That's not this discussion, but that it is a different type of discussion around pornography than maybe you've heard before. It's also worth noting that if it sounds like someone is being tortured in the background of Cameron, it's his kids. He's uh, having that opportunity to be at home and working and have kids. So should you hear that in the background to know that everything is just fine? It's just kids really enjoying the Lego room. And, uh, and, and I feel like it's just worth noting that one time so people don't go, am I going crazy? Do I hear something crazy going on? That's what that is. Well, that's awesome. I forget it's even there. I'm so used to it. <laughs> I, I appreciate your summary of that. Cause I think when I talk about terms like pornography and addiction, sometimes I get the reaction of, well, you don't think pornography is a big deal then, or that it's a problem. And, and clearly I, I've spent years and years helping people with pornography concerns so I may not love the term addiction and may not see it as helpful with this context, but the distress that people experience with pornography concerns is very real. And the individuals that are struggling with it, I, I deeply care about. And I, I just think there's more helpful frameworks to use to describe it other than addiction. So let's talk about the problem then. That's what we said we talked about here in the first part. What's the problem? I think a lot of it comes down to language. And maybe that's why we started there with definitions so we've done a lot of research about what causes mental health problems. And one of those approaches is called acceptance and commitment therapy. So it's a behavioral approach. It's been around for the last 20 years or so, but it also has roots in linguistic theory, a specific one that's called relational frame theory. And I won't go down that road. I was, really I was just going to say, Cameron, you're going to have to dumb this down a yep. lot because right now this is what this sounds like. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> There's so many books. Um, linguistics love it. I'm not going to go there. It's sure, pretty heavy. Sure, sure. But basically the idea is a lot of human suffering comes from language. So because we can name things, that's help us, helps us communicate things in the outside world, like threats around us, like, here comes a tsunami or there's a lion. That's really helpful. But over time, language has evolved to start to describe things in our internal world. And so we start to describe things like anxiety. And that term anxiety is from a French word that just meant the sensation of feeling stuck in the throat. Hmm. That's all it was, is trying to describe a sensation. And we use language so much where our mind doesn't distinguish like that this webcam is real from anxiety. And so we can label something in our minds like it must be real hmm. and it's going to be a problem. We need to get rid of it, but there's not like an anxiety tumor that shows up on a scan or a blood test for anxiety. Anxiety is a set of thoughts and reactions and urges and behaviors that are common enough that we group them together as anxiety. So that's helpful for communicating, but now our minds like anxiety is bad and we got to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when we do that with things inside of us, the more we struggle with it and fight with it, the worse that it gets and the more anxious that we become. And I've seen that same thing with things like addiction around pornography, where we start to define this problem as an addiction and our mind's like, oh crap, like we got to get rid of this because an addiction is a forever thing. It's a disease thing. It means there's a weakness, there's a deficit, like all these associations with that language. And that's a huge part of what keeps us stuck. It's kind of over-focus on those words and that language, and we kind of get trapped there. 
So then within that problem, within within that language, within that that dealings also comes in uh, the element of the church, because that is something that is reiterated time and time again. The idea of the guilt that comes from um, doing wrong, that comes from sinning, that comes from the need to repent, that idea of sorrow for sin, that that within the church, it, it almost, I would say, is a constant that we are to feel that because that is what propels us to then want to be better or to shed ourselves from that guilt. So if that's part of the problem, it seems that we are then setting ourselves up for a continuous, wait for it, addiction. That's Yeah, that's the challenge. And, and I think there's a big distinction between guilt that motivates us to change behavior and shame hmm. that can be paralyzing and crippling. So if I do an action that's wrong or injures you, feeling guilty is really healthy and it'll probably motivate me to say, I'm sorry, I'm probably not going to do that again. But some things transcend that guilt and turn to shame where it's like, it wasn't that I made a mistake. It's I'm a mistake. Mm. I'm a bad person. And when we feel that way, we tend to withdraw and shame can be so consuming that we try to do a lot of things to soothe ourselves. And that could be drugs, alcohol, food, pornography, exercise, you name it. So there is that cycle where we're doing something that we need to get rid of. So we want to talk about it a lot and we want to make it a big deal, put on everybody's radars. But what happens is if this is functioning more like a compulsion instead of an addiction, that approach can have some negative side effects. So how I define a compulsion is it's an emotion cycle where we're feeling something like we're anxious or we're uncomfortable or we're feeling lonely or sad. So we engage in a behavior to feel better temporarily. And that could be eating or viewing sexual images or going on a run or going on social media, but then we feel guilty or sad. So then we engage in that behavior again to feel better temporarily, but it just feel feeds it and it just kind of gets worse over time. So it's that feedback loop that gets us stuck and, for me, there's been so much focus on pornography as the problem. But for me, pornography is often a symptom of the underlying problem of shame. That we feel so bad about our sexuality and our actions that we tend to hide and withdraw. And we use things like pornography to help us feel better, but they also keep us trapped in that same position. Well, and we, we hear, uh, although not intentionally, I'm sure, um, within that the, the shame uh, uh, surrounding pornography within the church, right? We 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 hear these situations of uh, the husband or the wife because it's it's not a particular um, problem of only one sex. It's not only problems for men; it's also a problem for women. Although, as I understand the science of it, it's it's more predominant for men uh, than women. Is that accurate? I think I've definitely worked with a lot more men. I'm seeing increased rates of women and. Mm-hmm. I think part of the challenge is women that struggle with sexual concerns like pornography feel even more shame and are probably even less likely to seek out and reach help because we talk about it as a men's problem or men's issue. So when women struggle, they're like, oh my gosh, like this must be a real problem if I'm a woman and I'm struggling with this. Yep, you got it. So how do how do we how do we uh, throw that uh, and maybe this is more of the solution, so maybe I'm jumping the gun. Um but but if shame is the issue, how how do we how do we separate the sorrow for thing that is wrong 
from shame. I'm a horrible person who doesn't deserve. I mean, this is very much going to be in a, in a gospel setting, right? As we talk yeah. about this, but how how do I uh, move away from the sorrow for sin, or, or move toward the sorrow for sin, and away from the shame? I'm a horrible person. God would never want me. Sort of thing that we do. That cycle. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's it's a different mindset where I very much love the principle of eternal progression, which means like I got some time to work on my stuff because <laughs> I got plenty of things to work on. And I think about there's some things that are so sacred and so significant. And some of those are learning how our body works. And I don't know about this, but I wonder like if, if bodies are new and emotions are such a physical experience, I wonder if experiencing emotions as, as intensely as we do is a new experience. Hmm. That we're trying to figure this out. Having a body's new, having intense emotions is new. And then sexuality is, is really new. And we're trying to figure this out and it's eternally significant. And so we have all this pressure that you can't mess it up. Like it's a big deal if you mess it up. And yet it's new. And we're going to go through a developmental phase and there is a progression part. And I think about, oh, my kids are quiet now. Yeah, so I, I noticed. Example. <laughs> I think about my kids and they help me take so much perspective that they are learning new things all the time. And in that process, they make mistakes all of the time. And for me, I don't view those mistakes as catastrophic or terrible. Sometimes they get hurt and injured and I feel sorrow. They feel sorrow, their sadness. But for me, that progression is very much a learning opportunity and a learning experience. And for me, sin is another one of those loaded words where we hate it, and we, we fear it, and we don't want anybody to sin. We should turn away from the very thought of it. I mean, we, we yeah. within the language of the church, empower these words and feelings so much. We do. And for me, I've, I've probably changed my relationship to that word where sin is an opportunity to bring me closer to Christ. Hmm. Um, and it's like, oh, here's a time to, I need to kind of recorrect um, thank goodness for the atonement and repentance. What can I learn from this experience? How can I go towards my Savior? And for me, that's very different than shame, which I think is the primary tool of the adversary, where he's like, guess what? You looked at porn. The atonement no longer applies to you. You should never tell anybody about it. You need to hide. And for me, that is really inconsistent with a loving Heavenly Father and a Savior that says, you're going to make mistakes. That is the plan but you need to learn this stuff. This is really significant. So I will be there along the way to help you. And when you make mistakes, you're going to get hurt. And sometimes you're going to feel bad, but I want you to get up and I want you to learn from that. And I want you to progress. And for me, those principles guide me a lot more than the fear of failure or um, that anytime I make a mistake, it's over. For me, it's like, no, I didn't destroy the plan. It is the plan. Like learning is part of the plan. I think the way the adversary also works in that is I've heard, anecdotally within couples that uh, the husband or the wife finds out that the other person has viewed pornography and has said, I'm done. I can't handle this. This relationship is over. And obviously uh, that person who viewed it doesn't want their, you know, marital relationship to be over. And so instantly they have to hide this thing that they're struggling with. They're hiding, they're keeping secrets. Those things bring shame. And then quickly they're a horrible person who can't get out of it because they continue to do it because they find themselves in the very thing that you said, that cycle going over and over and over. That's it. Kaboom. Done. I'm not even a doctor and I know these things. But we're going to take a break. We're going to come back in the second uh, block of the cultural hall. We're going to talk about the person 
what you mean by that uh, and, and look a little bit deeper um, into these things that, that uh, is a different conversation about, I'm going to use the word because that's what we're talking about, pornography, even though, again, we can't define it. We don't really know what it is. We don't really know what it isn't. Uh, but we'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, man, what a great conversation. Cameron Staley, just amazing. He is one of more than 400 guests who has donned the microphones of the Cultural Hall. And, uh, you know, this thing ain't free. So if you guys like the Cultural Hall, you want to see it continue into the future, we would love to have you become a Patreon subscriber of The Cultural Hall. You can go to patreon.com slash thecultural and for as little as $3 a month, you can say, hey, you know what? I'm helping this thing continue. What a great conversation this is. What a great conversation other conversations have been. I would love to see that go forward. As little as $3 a month, as much as $10. I'll take more, but I've just sort of said it at three different levels. Uh, go to patreon.com slash the cultural hall. And don't forget, if you become a Patreon subscriber, you get to see the videos of these episodes and you get the opportunity to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group that all Patreon uh, saints are able to be a part of. Cameron, you sent me in anticipation of this conversation that we would talk in the second block about the person. And I love what you wrote. So I'm just going to share this as sort of the cue up of this section. You said most people that you counsel with porn problems strive to be, quote, obedient. They're kind hearted. They're sensitive with low emotional awareness, and they use external methods, i.e. porn, food, gaming to cope with emotion. And they're not horrible or dangerous to people. So let's get in there. I think that's what has compelled me and motivated me to be more active is my perception of who would struggle with pornography was destroyed really quickly when I began to work with people who struggled with pornography. So I did my residency down at BYU's counseling center. And that's the first time um, I worked with someone who struggled with pornography. And, and that was a really common, common presenting concern at BYU. And we had, I think four or five groups a semester just for pornography concerns. And that's where I started to see I remember that first group. There were like 19 people. It was a huge group in this first group that I led. You sound surprised. I'm not surprised at all, which I'm not. It's not any sort of slam. I just think that it's a it's a much more prevalent problem than I think that maybe we used to admit. Or certainly I think we're getting better at saying, yeah, you know what? This is this. This exists more than we are aware. Yeah. And it was newer to me. I'd never gone to BYU as a student. I'd, I'd never lived in that area. So that was, it was pretty new to me to experience that. And what I discovered really early on, even though I was at a religious university, um, that the individuals that were struggling with pornography seemed to be more religious than the other individuals I was working with um, at the same university. And I thought, what is going on? Like, 
the people in this group, they could quote general authorities and conference talks and scriptures. They knew them inside and out. And that was just a big part of their language. And, and that struck me really early on. It's like, this is not what I would have expected to experience with somebody struggling with pornography. Let me ask you this. Do you think that that lends to the idea, uh, as Shakespeare said, methinks thou dost protest too much? Like that the this idea that we outwardly try and compensate for those things that we um, inwardly struggle with? You know, I think that could be part of it, but I think, and so I'll, I'll entertain that thought. I will think about that. But I think what I've thought about is these individuals tend to search for kind of external things maybe a little bit more often than others in general. Hmm. And so what I found is, Often individuals are very well-versed, um, tend to read quite a bit. Um, they were really good home teachers, fulfilled <laughs> their callings. Like all those things you could check off, like I read my scriptures, I said my prayers, um, I did my calling, I listened to conference. Those are the type of activities. That's what I mean by external types of things, is often how they live their life and how they live their faith felt very external. So I actually do think they were more well-versed, more well-read in those areas. Because I think on the flip side, what I found is these individuals also were less aware of their emotional reactions and less comfortable just sitting with themselves, less aware of their body. And we know with research now that individuals that struggle with porn score, score lower on measures of trait and mindfulness. Hmm. It just means they're less present in their experience, in the moment, in their body. And so I think it is these individuals often are interfacing with life a little bit differently and they're searching for external solutions, things that are very internal. So I think they have searched the scriptures diligently and listened to kind of conference talks and they've done 12 step programs and addiction recovery programs to find the answer and the solution. They, I find these individuals extremely motivated to work on this mm -hmm. and yet they come to me and say, I have a self-control problem. And it's like, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's the opposite. You're trying to over control your experience, but maybe not in the most helpful way is you're searching for these outward solutions to a problem that is very internal. It's interesting too, because depending on how you would define religious, I mean, you kind of said that these are th these very outwardly external religious people that are checking boxes, right? We would look at it as they read the scriptures, they have their family home evenings, they minister every month, they go to the temple and all this stuff. Um, where other people, maybe not so much within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, would, de would describe their religiosity as their relationship inside with God and how, you know, some of our Christian brothers and sisters say that's why, uh, you know, members of our church really miss the mark is we think that it is very much all these outwardly things when in reality it's all going on inside. It's so internal, and I think— I did a little kind of search in the Book of Mormon and, and I just searched for the term heart. And cause I thought about like, they've got to be talking about emotions more in scriptures than I'm realized. And, and there's over like 500 references to heart, hmm. to emotion in scriptures. And the more I studied that, the more it hit me like, wow, often the spirit does speak to us through emotions. And yet I'm someone who's very cerebral, very analytical. I'd rather just study things, research things, but there's so much to emotions. And if we're not listening to that or not aware of that, 
we're going to miss out on so many meaningful things and connections. And I found that, that these are generally pretty good people that are trying to do all the right things, but maybe missing out on how living their faith can be intrinsically meaningful and quite comforting and quite connecting and soothing. And I think that connection is the antidote to a pornography problem, but often people are trying to find ways to eradicate sexuality or control urges. And that's an external solution to things like desire and sexuality that are so internal that we need to understand them and get more comfortable with them. And often I found that people that struggle with pornography don't want to do that. Hmm. It's like, no, I want to turn it off. I want to control it. And it's like, yeah, that's the wrong tool for the problem. Um, but I, I found that generally these individuals are very kind hearted and their intentions seemed so pure. It's just their efforts were kind of not in the right spot for the issue. Well, and interesting too, because I mean, speaking of, of maybe two of my favorite things, which would be food and also uh, sexuality, like those are things that are designed by God to be really enjoyable, given to us for our enjoyment with respect, with, you know, given within the, the, not the controlled bonds. I mean, certainly with marriage, as far as sexuality goes, but I mean, there are, they are things to be respected, uh, to be entered into with, uh, in regards to sexuality, the, um, the agreement and the consent by both parties, all of those things. But, but, you know, if you ever question, is sex meant to be good? God's like, yeah, yeah, guys, I gave you all the parts so that it would be enjoyable. And, and so to, to say, I want to turn that off. I want to not have that be uh, alluring to not have that be exciting to me in a way denies the power of God. I agree. And I, and I do think about that, like the body and how it works and how it's designed that Food is pleasurable. It tastes good. Yeah. And is pleasurable. It feels good. And that's by design. Um, it's to help us live and survive and procreate, but also it helps us connect. It's soothing. And these are not terrible, awful things. But often what I found is when we view this, that our sexual desire is bad. And if we have an interest in looking at sexual images, that must be an addiction. We start to have a problem with ourselves where we start to view that we are broken, we are somehow wrong, we are somehow rebelling against God, when in reality, it's kind of working how it's supposed to. You're supposed to have desire and interest, and doing that in the proper time and place, like you mentioned, in that relationship within that marriage, it's so fulfilling and meaningful. But to get there, we neglect that sexual desire and interest is still there, even when you're not married, and when you're young and growing up, it doesn't just show up one day. So what do we do with that? And I don't think we've spent a lot of time having that conversation about, yeah, teens, adolescents, they're sexual beings. Like they feel that desire, but they've just kind of been told the thou shalt nots, this isn't okay. And so we develop this shame response to ourselves where being a sexual person is bad. And we kind of shut that part down. And that's what breaks my heart when I work with young couples that are married where they're just not aware of their sexuality and their expectations going in. And often what I see with couples is there's the the male that may have been using pornography to kind of cope with distress and emotions his whole life and never once thought about how that might impact a partner. Mm-hmm. Then we've got the partner, and often it is the female partner, that if they discover that their husband looked at pornography, 
feels this really deep betrayal and infidelity and it brings up all these insecurities because both parties have different expectations and yet we don't set a stage for we need to talk about these expectations and what has been your experience with pornography what are your thoughts about that how do we navigate the situation instead we're so afraid of sexuality we don't talk about it and then we get really hurt and then we go to our own corners and withdraw and for me sex and bodies are designed to be connecting and bring us together and yet in the absence of good education and conversation they can do the opposite well and what we do within the church is we say i yeah, don't know no, no, we uh, we don't uh, talk about uh, if you, we talk about it then you're going to want to do it yeah. uh, you're if we listen if we even tease around this oh no you're married no go ahead and we all go yeah. wait what i don't even i don't even how but yesterday when i wasn't married I wasn't allowed to even think about this. And now I've got this, uh, you know, I don't want to say free pass, but essentially that's what I mean, a free pass within the respectful confines of a marriage to be able to enjoy all of these things. We've talked about that quite a bit here in the cultural hall. I think it's also worth noting uh, that uh, we, we sort of equated food with sex. And I just want people to know it is perfectly fine to share a meal before you're married. I didn't want to make that straight across the board line. We can share a meal. Uh, maybe there's some germ issues with, with a global pandemic and all that maybe we shouldn't be doing that. But on the whole, not exactly the same issue. Uh, I want to take another break, and I know it may be a little bit premature, but I, I want to leave us plenty of time to be able to talk about the solution. And I think that's where a lot of the meat of our discussion will come from. So let's take it back. We'll, talk, uh, 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 we'll take a break. And we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, the solution as you purport it, as what we can do, as how we can change the conversation as uh, one who may be listening to this and, and say, you know what, I do struggle. I'm not shaming myself, but how can I move forward, move through this? We'll have that discussion coming back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Hey, this is Dan the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. It's our ultra-mega back-to-school blowout sale. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars of ultra-high-quality laptops and desktops on sale for up to 50% off the original prices. We've got demos, scratch and dents, trade-ins, and funny colored computers. It's crazy. Remember, you get a lifetime service guarantee on any PC Laptops brand computer. That means if you mess up your Windows or you get a virus or spyware, it's covered forever. Got an old yucky computer? No problem. We'll take it in on trade and we'll transfer all your pictures, music, and all your stuff to your PC Laptops computer for free. When you get your computer from PC Laptops, we'll make sure you're taken care of for a lifetime. To make it impossible to resist, we're doing 12 months special financing on any PC Laptops desktop or laptop computer. Have I lost my mind? Get into any one of our locations right now or check us out at PCLaptops.com. PC Laptops, where computers start at $7.99. PC Laptops, we love you. If you ever would like to be a part of the Cultural Hall, you think, you know what, I'm interesting enough. Richie should chat with me. You can send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. Or if you've read a book, seen a movie, you saw a tweet or something that you're like, you know who would make a great guest of the Cultural Hall? That person, you can send it along, contact at theculturalhall.com. You can also find us on any social media. Yes, we're on that one too. Oh, yep, and that one. Oh, and I know you're thinking they couldn't possibly be there. Yes, we are. It's at the Cultural Hall on all social media channels. Find us and you can direct message us. Or as the kids used to say, slide into our DMs. We would love to have that conversation with you there. Cameron, what's the solution? Where do we go? We've, we've talked about a lot of stuff. And I'm hoping that in the time that we have remaining, we can really give 
um, some real, some tangible, some actionable things to people, uh, whether they be individuals or people that find themselves in couples where uh, pornography, again, this loosely defined term, has affected their life and their happiness. Yeah. And that's where the good news comes in is there are there is help and it, it's probably not as painful as you think. So when I was doing my research and looking at, you know, is pornography an addiction? Um, that's kind of one question. But the other question is what treatments are there for somebody struggling with pornography? If you call it addiction or a compulsion or higher sexual drive or whatever it is. And at the time, I couldn't find any. I couldn't find a single treatment outcome study investigating any approach for pornography. And that was shocking because there's a huge industry for treating pornography concerns and not a single published study. Hmm. Unfortunately, in the last 10 years, we have a few. And by a few, I mean a handful. So when I did my residency at BYU, I really assumed that they would be using the addiction recovery program in their counseling center. And the, addiction, the addiction recovery program that is sort of sponsored by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, founded sort of loosely on the 12-step program that we, we hear about in popular culture. Got it. Thanks for defining that. You're welcome. So I thought that's what they'd be using, and they weren't, and they never had. And instead, they were using the approach that I mentioned earlier called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a mindfulness-based approach. And that really surprised me where it's like, whoa, like I thought BYU would be using that same approach that the church sponsors. And the reason why they weren't is they needed to use an approach that was supported uh, with research. So as a psychologist, we have, an, we have an ethical responsibility and mandate to only offer treatments that have an evidence base and no addiction approaches have that claim. Huh. Well, acceptance and commitment therapy um, at that time, had been studied hundreds of times in randomized clinical trials and shown effective in treating depression and anxiety and compulsive behaviors like OCD. And so it made sense that, you know, pornography concerns kind of resemble a compulsion. Let's use this approach that has a lot of evidence that it is effective for compulsive behaviors. So they had been running acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT groups for about 15 years quite a long time. I'm yeah. I'm going to I'm going to need to know more about what this is. You'll notice that I have now leaned in. I've gotten closer to the uh to my computer, to my microphone to be able to speak to you because I I think that there are a lot of people just at your stating yeah, the the church as a whole would use the ARP or the ARP? Uh, yeah, addiction recovery program. Uh but you're saying that that BYU Brigham Young University also owned by same said church uses something completely different. So I want to know how, what, when, how do we, why do we all these things within that, that, uh, this program that you use there at BYU? You said it's yeah, more it mindful. Huge, yeah, it was a huge question for me. And, and so the person that developed acceptance and commitment therapy, Steve Hayes, um, one of the people that trained under him was a former director at BYU's counseling center. So he kind of brought ACT to that group, and then several people began to adopt it. Because um, what I found is ACT is really helpful for people that struggle with perfectionism, that are kind of overachieving, very anxious, very externally driven. So a lot of the things I experienced at BYU and those that struggle with pornography, 
ACT was kind of the antidote that it mapped on to a lot of those things. So it made sense that it would be effective and it really was. And so a couple of years after that, some researchers at Utah State University published some of the first outcome studies on using ACT for pornography and the results were incredible. Um, so tell, me, found, tell me what you mean by incredible. Yeah, so they brought in participants that had been struggling with years and years of pornography viewing and after 12 sessions of ACT, um, they were able to reduce their pornography viewing on average by over 90%. Oh my gosh. And for me, that that's staggering. Yeah. Where a lot of people view pornography concerns as this is a lifelong issue. Once an addict, always an addict. You need to always have an accountability buddy or a mentor. And that's a really different model. And I think sometimes we forget that if we're not able to change our behavior, Sometimes it's the approach that we're using may not be as effective as we want. And it may not be some deficit in ourselves, or we're not trying hard enough or we're not motivated or we don't want it hard enough. Sometimes it's the approach we're using. It may not be as helpful as we think. <laughs> um, and our mind's just not aware of that. It's like, well, this clinician told me to do this. My church leaders told me to do this. It must work. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, people are just trying to do the best they can and addiction's what they know. And so they recommend it. But there are more helpful treatments out there. I think, you know, also one of the benefits, perhaps some also one of the things that I think we're we're criticized often for is that we just sort of accept what the church says. Right. Church has addiction recovery program. I do what the church says because the church wouldn't lead me astray. The you know, the church would 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 do something different if there was something different that was available. And they just sort of removed that element of thinking. Now, Fundamentally, I recognize that leaders of the church have said, find a testimony of everything on your own to make sure that it applies for you, that you can follow it and adhere to it because of that. But I think it is interesting that within the very fundamental structure of the church, there is almost that tendency to accept this is how it is. I must, there must be then something fundamentally wrong with me. If the way that, you know, God's church would have me deal with this, well, I guess I'm stuck and there must be that 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 flaw that tragic flaw within yep and i've seen that and i think i love the concept of the iron rod like just hold to it you're good to go right a couple chapters later it's like yeah and sometimes life is more like a wilderness and you got to learn to work this liahona thing yeah and you gotta listen to it and it takes a lot of effort and i think we'd rather just hold on to a rod and have someone point us in the direction and yet i think a lot of it comes from we need to start to figure out what works for us. Um, and we want to have someone just to tell us how it works, but I don't think that is the plan. That isn't the approach. And I've, I've really been appreciating kind of the shift I felt from church leaders where um, the church put out a new series of videos on pornography and I watched every single one and I didn't hear the word addiction a single time. Really? And I think Elder Oaks has done a nice job that there's levels of involvement there can be exposure, involvement, there could be compulsion, there could be addiction. But the fact that you have an interest or an urge or a view pornography does not equal addiction. Hmm. Um, but I think we like that black or white thinking. Sure. And yet that's just not how it works. So I think there is a lot of hope. There is a lot of good news. And at the foundation of ACT is mindfulness. And so, so, so that's a buzzword. I mean, anyone, yeah. anyone that's paying attention to popular culture is like, I'm being more mindful. Also, right. along with it is they're being more intentional. I'm being authentic, mindful and intentional. And it's just like, 
that doesn't make sense. Tell me what you mean by mindful. And I think that was my objective. Like I did a TED talk at ISU a few months ago where I tried to demonstrate what mindfulness actually was. So in that TED talk, as I shared kind of my experience working with people um, around just discomfort around sexuality and the research and the struggle, I invited people to check in with what they were feeling periodically as I was sharing that. And then I also shared what I was feeling. And so I think that is a big part of mindfulness is being present in your body, aware of your emotions and doing it in a non-judgmental, curious manner. So for me, cultivating that mindset, that's not something you can check off. Like, <laughs> oh, I was mindful today, I'm good to go. <laughs> that is a way to approach life. And that's Leahona stuff, in my opinion is learning to tune in to that. And that takes effort. And sometimes we tune out of that. It's like, oh, shoot, I don't know where to go to find food anymore. It's like, yeah, we need to get reconnected with ourself, with the spirit, with direction, with good people in our life. And so for me, that mindfulness, some of us, I think, want something more complicated, where it's like, I, I'll do some amazing things. And I think about General Naaman in the Old Testament as that example, where he had leprosy and appeal to the prophet and the prophet sent the servant and said, just go dip in the river and you'll be good. He's like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Like make me do something amazing. And I think about dipping in the river is similar to me as I want you to be more present with your emotions. And as I bring that concept up to people are like, nah, like give me a new internet filter and a new accountability buddy and a new program. And it's like, right. no, seriously, I just want you to notice what you're feeling this week. And what you'll discover is, Typically, what precedes an urge to view pornography is an emotion. This may not be a sexual concern as much as it is an emotional concern. And so if you're running through life, sprinting to the next thing, you just keep tripping and falling, and you don't take the time to look down and see what's tripping you. And often it's emotion. It's I'm overwhelmed, or I'm lonely, or I'm stressed, or I'm sad. And when we're not aware of that, we tend to engage in behaviors to try to calm those emotions, but we don't even know what they are. And so for a lot of people, when you slow down, it's like, oh, I'm feeling lonely. Maybe I have that urge to view pornography because I'm lonely. And yeah, sometimes viewing pornography gives you a semblance of connection that's temporary and might be more than other people have, um, but it's not gonna be sustaining and fulfilling. And so when you can slow down and identify that you're feeling lonely, you have options now. You can just sit and feel that emotion and recognize you're human. And this is painful. Or you can reach out to people in your life and get connected. So I think that's the beauty of mindfulness is it gives you options. Instead of being like, something's going on, I got to get rid of it, I'll look at porn. Something's going on, what is it? This can be okay, it might be uncomfortable. And if I am feeling sad, what can I do to take care of myself in that moment? It's an interesting thing as I think about this. This is uh, something that I struggle with, not the pornography part of it, but the uh, the ease of the way and my ultimate resistance toward that thing. I mean, you talk about, the, you know, the go wash in the river, the simplicity of touching the robe of Jesus and the person was healed. Uh, you know, look at the staff and then they were able to be healed time and time and time again. Um, and, and the thing that, that just is resounding to me as we have this conversation and as I think, I, I don't know where the disconnect is for me, but mm. like I, I, I think, 
well, I don't know what that's like to sit in my feeling. And since mm-hmm. I don't know, boy, not knowing what that may feel like, what that may be like, that's scary. So I'm going to do whatever I can to avoid that, you know, that opportunity of feeling anything almost. And I think a lot of people do that. I mean, we're in such a culture of today um, that it is go, 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 that it isn't the time to be, you know, to to take time to check in with how you are, to be mindful. I think that's why it's so popular right now, because so few people are able to actually take that time. And I'll be honest, and this is not this is not showmanship right now. It is genuinely a thing that scares me. I'll even drop this a little further. So I work with a counselor and uh, recently was, well, fairly recently, I guess it's like four years ago or so, I was divorced. And he said, all right, so here's what we're going to do. I want you as part of, you know, kind of, we had this discussion there. It was a horrible first marriage, but he said, I want you to sit for five minutes and not do anything. And I said, yeah, but what, so what am I doing in that five minutes? And he's like, no, see, that's, that's the beauty of it. You're not doing anything. And I was like, okay, so I'm just going to sit for five minutes. That's what, that's what you're going to have me do And he's like, yeah, I dare you. And he and I are really good friends. Uh, So I was like, uh, all right, I'll try. I'll take your little five minute challenge thinking, sure, I'm going to look at the staff. I'm going to go wash the river. I'm going to touch the robe. Sure. It was the worst five minutes of my entire life because I had to feel it. And that was the other part of the challenge. He said, as you sit in that time, if you feel sad, allow yourself to feel sad. If you feel happy, you feel every bit of that happiness. If you are angry, you yell as loud as you possibly can and just experience whatever that emotion was. It was torturous for me. Absolutely torturous. But allowed me to see that, you know, with all the things that I'm doing, constantly keeping things busy, I'm not allowing myself to actually feel anything. And when you can't feel anything, you're not affected. It, 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 you almost become numb just of life. You're just an, uh, an agent to be acted upon as instead of acting. You said that so well. Um, and I think your experience that you just shared is universal. We are programmed to interact with our life in that way. So I think about there's so many things we encounter in life that is pain. And I think you mentioned being in a marriage that was not good, not healthy. Mm-hmm. That's a primary pain. Um, when you lose a loved one, when we're in a pandemic, there are some fears that are unavoidable, inescapable, and that is pain. Your mind is desperately trying to find a way to help you not feel pain because it thinks pain equals death. And its only objective is to help you survive. It's not to make you happy mm-hmm. feel good. Mm-hmm. It's like avoid discomfort. It's dangerous. But the problem is when we avoid pain, that's what leads to suffering. And so a lot of depression, anxiety, pornography concerns are our mind's effort to avoid pain and it causes suffering. And I'm amazed, like even as a psychologist, I don't like the way my emotions make me feel either. I don't (laughs) want to feel them. If I could think them away, I would. That is my preference. And yet they're inescapable. Emotions are biological events. They organize who we are. And if you break down the term, they put our actions in motion. That is what emotion is. Hmm. So if we ignore them and just keep running, they're going to put us in motion 
towards things that we don't want to do. And so slowing down and feeling those things, I'm with you. It's like, that's terrifying. And even as a psychologist, the thought of like sitting on the couch, talking to a therapist, I'm like, I don't want to find out what's in there. Like that is scary. And yet what I found is even that little bit of anticipation, that fear, that worry is really short. Hmm. And on the other side of that, even though it could be hurt or despair or loneliness, I've found a tremendous amount of connection and peace in those emotions. And why I love what I do as a psychologist is I spend most of my day talking about bad things Mm -hmm. and feeling sad emotions. And I find that so connecting and so humanizing. And I think about, we don't think about the atonement in that way. And I love the words of Alma every time. I can't wait to get to that and come follow me. (laughs) Alma knew that side of the atonement intimately. He understood that it was about our emotions and our pain and our suffering, if we sit there and allow ourselves to fill it, we can access the atonement there too. But the challenge is we don't want to fill it. We're like, take it away. Yeah. And I don't think it works like that. I think our Savior will join us in those moments, and he's waiting for us to slow down and fill it, and he's there. And I felt that in my own life, and I felt that at times in therapy, whereas I've slowed down and allowed myself to fill some wounds that have been deep and painful, my savior has been there too. And it just requires me to have that faith, to slow down and feel something that is scary. And yet I found that emotions may threaten you, that they might overcome you, but they don't. They're there to help you and communicate things to you. And it's all about changing our relationship to them. Instead of battling them constantly, um, and that's typical what we do with pornography, Right. we can to interact with them. And that can be life-changing. You know, when we think of the example of the Savior who, you know, suffered and he's like, hey, God, hey, Father, please, how about not? But then, you know, not rests necessarily in it, but feels it, feels every bit of it. it it's a, it's a, an interesting parallel to mindfulness that I had never looked at it that way. Your old hat at that. I'm sure you're like, sure, Christ, the perfect example of mindfulness, but I'd never made that connection before um, as part of Christ's suffering and and subsequent atonement. Um, If people have been listening to this conversation, Cameron, maybe they find themselves to be a part of an addiction recovery program or something that is not what we discussed. How would you recommend that that they find out a little bit more about what we discussed and they can they can try that if what they're doing, essentially what I'm saying is if what people are doing isn't working for them, what, what do you recommend for them? Yeah, I'm glad you said it that way, because if people are, are in an addiction program and it's helping them, I would say keep doing it. Yeah. Like my objective is to find what works. And for a lot of people, just having that support and framework and being able to talk about it is going to be enough and really helpful. So if it's working, keep going. Don't change it. Yeah. If it's taking you where you want to go and you're able to manage your behaviors better, excellent. Um, If it's not working, um, there are so many helpful approaches. So the approach that I mentioned, acceptance and commitment therapy, I've seen it work over and over and over, not just with pornography concerns, but with trauma and depression and anxiety. And there's so many good self-help resources on it. So some of my favorite books on ACT, um, one's called The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. Um, he's got a website. That one's fantastic. Um, Steve Hayes created one called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. 
Um, that one's really good. And then I put together a self-directed program that's all online. Um, it's kind of what I would do in therapy if someone came to me with a pornography concern. And so I've got a 10 module series on all these act principles where I'm going to walk people through mindfulness, through willingness, through emotions, through this paradox of struggle, through language, helping people rebuild their life through values. That's the other part we didn't even talk to talk about is once you let go of your struggle with yourself, it's time to start to build the life you want. And that's huge. And, and I think it's a big part of ACT. So I put all that together in a program called Life After Pornography. And I try to make it really accessible. You can listen to it. I've got audio recordings, video recordings, and I made it all less than the cost of a single therapy session. Because um, I found that if people just had access to these principles, they could get help now and move forward in their life and get past something they've been struggling with for decades. An amazing amount of resources that you dropped there. People can find links to those in association with this episode at theculturalhall.com. We'll make them all available there. You can click and check it out. Uh, and you can also be able to reach out to Cameron that way as well. Cameron, everyone who steps into the cultural hall has to answer three questions. So sorry, pal, you have to answer them as well. The first question is, uh, do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? Currently, I've got a couple. So... I'm in the Elders Corn Presidency and pulling w double duty as the ward mission leader. There you go. There you go. I just got out of the Elders Corn Presidency, so I want you to know that there is light at the end of that tunnel. <laughs> the second question we ask everyone is, uh, if you could pick a calling, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Oh, I would totally make one up. And I've, I've honestly fantasized about this so many times. I would lead a therapy group during Sunday school hour where people actually talk about their real struggles with aspects of the gospel or doctrines or living principles. And I would cultivate it in a safe forum where it's like, let's actually just not talk about the ideals, but talk about how we're actually living this. Mm. And I would model that after Moroni where he said, we meet together oft concerning the welfare of our souls. And I would go at that level where it's like, let's actually talk about how challenging it is to live our faith and support each other. with it. That'd be my dream calling. I love it. I love it. The last question we ask everyone, and you can interpret this however you would like. The question is, what is your favorite part of your faith? Oh, yeah, I think even asking that, it hits me in my core. If, if I'm being mindful and aware, I think about there, there are a lot of cultural things that I kind of struggle with that, that aren't central to me, that have a whole lot of meaning to me. But the one thing that's been a constant for me in my life is I've always known and always felt that my heavenly father loved me, um, that I am truly his child, that he wants the best for me. He wants me to progress, um, that he has a path for me to return home. And I have felt my savior there. Um, there's been times in my life where I've gone through struggles and there's been challenges and loneliness and People are finite, they're limited, people will let you down. And I've always felt my savior there. Um, there's times I might wander away, um, but my savior never has. And that is the most central part of my faith is, um, I've always felt the presence of my heavenly father and my elder brother there, supporting me, cheering there with me, when I make mistakes, crying with me, but then telling me to get up, keep going. Like there's so much more. And that has never wavered for me. Hmm. Um, that's always been there. And that has been a really special part about my testimony. 
I appreciate you sharing that. Um, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you are not healthy enough to listen to it this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen to it next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show. Ow!